Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I am your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is part of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to OsirisPod.com and check out all the happenings over there. That is OsirisPod.com. Today, we celebrate the life and legacy of one of the 20th century's most prophetic thinkers, and that is Aldous Huxley, through an interview with author Jake Poehler. Jake is the author of the biography entitled Aldous Huxley, which is the focus of this episode, and he also wrote Aldous Huxley and Alternative Spirituality. Beyond that, he edited the essay collection Altered Consciousness in the 20th Century, and his articles have appeared in the Aldous Huxley Annual, the D.H. Lawrence Review, Aries, Literature and Theology, and International Journal for the Study of New Religions. His research focuses on the intersection of alternate spirituality, Western esotericism, philosophy, and psychoanalysts with 20th century literature and culture. Aldous Huxley was one of the 20th century's most prescient thinkers. Poehler's biography is a rich and lucent account that charts the different phases of Huxley's career. From the early satirists who depicted the glamorous despair of the post-war generation, to the committed pacifist of the 1930s, to the spiritual seeker of the 1940s, the psychedelic sage of the 1950s, who affirmed the spiritual potential of mescaline and LSD, to the New Age prophet that defined his later years. While Huxley is still best known as the author of Brave New World, Polar argues that the three books, The Perennial Philosophy, The Doors of Perception, and Island, have had the most cultural impact. Huxley's influence was vast. We see it today in the ever-increasing appetite for spiritual experiences, for meditation retreats, for ayahuasca holidays. We see it in the multi-billion dollar shroom boom, the popularity of yoga, tai chi, and other mind-body practices. And we see it in the rise of spiritual communities and centers everywhere. Now, more than ever, Puller points out so vividly in his book, the work of Aldous Huxley leads the way. In this episode, Jake and I discuss what compelled Huxley to seek out transcendent experiences and how psychedelics changes life and his worldview. We explore what Huxley's novel Island means to his legacy and why his bounteous, insightful essays deserve a much wider readership and much, much more. In my estimation, there truly isn't anyone out there better to talk to about Aldous Huxley, so I have no doubt you'll enjoy this interview with Jake Polar. Cross the margin. Cross the margin. Podcast. Great. Well, thank you again uh, for coming on to the uh, the podcast. I really appreciate it. This is a topic I've been fascinated with for a while. Um, and I'm curious. Uh, you know, it's it's obviously you're deeply. Or I'm asking if you're inspired by Huxley as well, or what kind of led you to want to tell uh, Huxley's story like this. Right. So, yeah, I think uh, I first started reading Huxley as a teenage boy. I think a lot of people come to Huxley at school, maybe reading Brave New World. Um, but 
first book I read by Huxley, I think, was um, Decay, and then I read Point Counterpoint, and these were novels that were set in the 1920s in London, and they really portrayed that kind of glamorous despair of this post-war generation. They were filled with writers and intellectuals and, you know, these uh, fast society women like Lucy Tantamount and uh, Myra Viviash. Uh, and, and, and so, yeah, this is all very intriguing. Also, Huxley seemed to know everything about sex and relationships, and, and that was all fascinating to me as an adolescent. You know, I thought this is what adult life is really like. Makes sense, yeah. Yeah. So, so yes, yeah, so then I had this sort of initial Huxley phase where, as, a, as an adolescent. And then when I was 30, uh, I started getting really into yoga and was interested in um, yoga philosophy, Hinduism and Buddhism. And, and uh, around this time, I was kind of casting around for a subject for a, to write a PhD on. And I thought Huxley uh, would be ideal because not only did I admire him as a literary artist, but also... Uh, he was someone who was instrumental in, in sort of popularizing Eastern spirituality in the West. So that was kind of ideal for me. Um, so, yes, I did my PhD on Huxley and then I wrote an academic book uh, several years later on Huxley uh, called Aldous Huxley and Alternative Spirituality. Uh, and then on the back of that, I was invited to write this book for, for reaction, uh, but was obviously overjoyed to do it. Uh, yeah, wonderful. Um, yeah, we'll touch on that, how, you know, how his influence really affected the, the new age way of thinking we're seeing so much of today, which is, it's, I feel like his influence is even growing more and more. We're seeing what, what he really meant to everything that a lot of people care about right now, and that's really helping a lot of people. But um, I was really taken by the detail in, in this book, and uh, it's, it's so impressive. I mean, the, the personal life stories, the everything with his travel, even down to like the, his, all his psychedelic experiences and what, what those meant to him. I'm um, like, what was the process of bringing this to life? I'm assuming it, there was a lot of research talking to a lot of people. What, what, what was it like digging into his, um, you know, his, his extravagant life? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, obviously I'd, I'd sort of done the PhD in this academic book. So I was, I was quite thoroughly steeped in, in the Huxley of, um, so Yes, so I'd sort of done quite a lot of the heavy lifting uh, already, but um, I think it was more a process of whittling it down. Uh, so uh, reaction, they wanted um, the the book to be about 50,000 words, and they sort of said, you know, 60,000 at the at the utmost. And, and you know, that's it's quite short, really. Yeah. And another consideration as well, uh, one of the sort of unique selling points of this reaction series called Critical Lies is there's an equal emphasis on the life and the work. Whereas mm -hmm. in most biographies you read now, I would say it's 95% life, 5% work. Yeah. So with a 50-50 split, you've got even less. So uh, that was a real challenge as well. And also, you know, people are aware of Huxley as a, as a novelist, but he also wrote, you know, uh, eight volumes of essays, six mm. volumes of poetry, three travel books, two uh, plays. Yep. Oh, yeah, I mean, obviously I've read them all, but, you know, I couldn't begin to write about them all. So it was sort of having to be really selective and, and just, I guess, kind of concentrate on, on the main novels and, and books and, 
you know, mentioning a few of the essays here and there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was pretty concise. It's something I would def, def, definitely recommend for. It's, I mean, it's an easy read, and there's a lot to chew on. I mean that in a really, really good way. Um, there's a concept that's kind of integral to know about when we're speaking about this book, and that is the uh, the notion of um, uh, the island universe. And there's, mm-hmm. there's multiple ways to look at this, but this is something that kind of um whether it shaped his worldview or it's something he thought about often but i thought it was important to discuss as we move into this what is what does he mean by this island universe yeah so it's a metaphor that he uses uh throughout his work it kind of comes up in different contexts um but mostly it's uh about this this idea of um individuals as tiny island universes trapped in their own universe unable to make contact with other people but yearning to break out of that uh island universe um in uh, in the doors of perception huxley um says that you know even when we're at our most intimate when we're having sex with someone else we're still trapped in our own insulated ecstasies we're unable to communicate uh so um this is what yeah the island universe represented um also as well you know his his final novel is called island and i guess one of the ideas there is is that it seems sort of isolated in the middle of the ocean but yet sort of there's the seabed and underneath that we're sort of all connected Um, and that jibes well with another metaphor from his novel Eilis and Gaza which is uh, about the ocean so he says that we are individual waves on the surface but underneath we're this metaphysical unity that we're all sort of together we're all one Um, so so yes that that's something that yeah it comes up a lot in his work yeah, um, there's one island uh, universe I really uh, I thought it was great when he was talking about the um, kind of the island universe of discourse. And it, it kind of speaks to uh, he was talking about how disciplines, a lot of disciplines are kind of on their own. And he sought mm-hmm. to kind of bring them together, which I thought was really, um, you know, a heady thought kind of, uh, you know, speaks to the Renaissance man in him in some ways. Um, let's get into. Um, you know, he was obviously a searcher, a seeker. He was looking for something. And um, transcendence is one thing he was surely looking for. And I was wondering if we could talk about, um, you know, why did he yearn uh, so, so much for transcendence? What, 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 what were some of the reasons that he was, you know, looking for something else? Yeah, okay, so he talks about two types of transcendence in his work. Uh, The first is what he calls upward self-transcendence. So this is this attempt to transcend your your personality, your ego, and to make contact, to identify or with what he calls uh, an impersonal Godhead, the divine ground. So it's not a sort of a personal God. It's not an old man with a gray beard. Uh, it's like a universal mind. And he thinks that you know, mystics throughout the ages have made contact with this universal mind. And that's why there's a sort of resemblance to all their teachings. So he would kind of come on to this when he wrote the perennial philosophy so that's that's upward self-transcendence then the more common variety is downward self-transcendence so this is through music drugs alcohol sex Uh, so until about the mid-1930s he's more interested in downward trans Mm -hmm. self-transcendence he doesn't 
really take drugs until he starts experimenting with mescaline. He's a moderate drinker. So it's really sex is a means of transcendence. Mm -hmm. And um, his first wife, Marie, was bisexual. She was mostly attracted to women. And she would uh, arrange for Huxley to have these liaisons with uh, other women um, because she wanted to sort of help get him out of his head to sort of experience his body. She thought this would be good for his work, make him a more sort of polymorphous novelist. Um, so, so yes, that was downward self-transcendence. And then in the mid thirties, he becomes interested in mysticism. Uh, he starts to work for a pacifist organization. Uh, and uh, so then he once again, uh, becomes interested in, in sort of means of uh, upward self-transcendence and begins to meditate and practices pranayama and yoga as well. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to note when you think about what kind of shaped him and, and kind of what also kind of uh, pushed him towards, um, you know, uh, these, these kind of, you know, these, these transcendence you're talking about both levels. Thanks for discussing both of those is, he also had a lot of ailments in life, which I guess mm. was wild. And it just it kept kind of going as you go through mm. his life and you move through his life chronologically in the book. I mean, his body was failing him a lot. And I could see mm. how that could lead to thinking about other aspects to, to search for. I mean, eyesight problems, respiratory problems, influenza, bronchitis. Someone was describing it as his body hurt all the time. So that had to be a big reason why he was looking for something that didn't have to do with the physical. So you mentioned how, uh, uh, you know, he later on moved towards that upward level of transcendence, seeking it, and obviously psychedelics come into play. So how was it that mescaline, which was his first uh, experience there, but psychedelics in general, um, how did that change his life and his worldview? Yeah, profoundly. Um, so even though Huxley was meditating from the, the mid-30s onwards, he found it incredibly challenging. He, he felt he wasn't really getting anywhere with it. And as I said, he, he was an intellectual, he led a life of the mind. And, and one of the aims in meditation is to still the fluctuations of the mind. So um, by the mid or by the early 1950s, I guess he was, um, yes, growing sort of disillusioned with meditation. And then he came across these uh, articles by two British psychiatrists. Uh, so Humphrey Osmond and John Smithies. And they were researching mescaline, uh, thinking about it as what they called a psychotomimetic, something that mimicked psychosis. Mm. So they had lots of schizophrenic patients and they wanted to take something that would enable them or give them an insight into what this psychosis was like. So Humphrey Osmond, his first experience with mescaline was a terrible bad trip because that's kind of what he was expecting. Yeah. He was hoping to have this experience of psychosis. And sure enough, you know, it was in London and the people he saw in the streets were terribly sinister and they had these awful, you know, wens on their faces and it was all sort of horrific. Um, whereas Huxley had a totally different idea of, uh, what mescaline might do. Um, and I think this derived from um, a book he read and reviewed in 1931 called Fantastica by Lewis Lewin. And that was all about psychoactive substances. And Huxley noticed reading about mescaline that some of the experiences these people had uh, reminded him of the, the mystics and people like William Blake and 
Jacob Bohm, and, and uh, so he was hoping when he took mescaline to, it would, you know, not maybe give him a mystical experience, but it would kind of give him an insight in, into yeah. what it was like. Um, and then, yeah, the experience ex itself was profound and far-reaching. So Huxley famously writes in The Doors of Perception about these flowers in his study, uh, just seeming like a normal rose and carnation, but then uh, they're transfigured when he takes mescaline and he sort of sees them as a sort of uh, an instantiation of, of God. He sees the divine in everything around him, not just in nature, but in, in, the ch in his chair, in the creases, in his trousers, everything sort of imbued with this imminent Godhead. Uh, and Huxley feels himself, he, you know, he transcends himself. What's so exciting about it is he sort of finally gets beyond this island universe of himself and feels at one with, with the chair, with the flowers, with nature. Um, and so he sort of, you know, he'd read about these experiences, but it's one thing to kind of read about it, know about it at second hand, but to sort of experience this divine imminence for himself was, was absolutely mind-blowing. Um, and we see the sort of ramifications of this experience in his work. So mm. in lots of his novels, that he, you know, earlier work where he writes about mysticism like Eilis and Gaza or Time Must Have a Stop, his, his protagonists tend to be libertines who reform their life and then pursue a spiritual path, but it sort of involves austerities, giving up sex, and uh, whereas uh, after the masculine experience, he becomes interested in religious traditions that sort of valorize the, the body and the world as a divine emanation. Um, and so we can see this in Island, which is his last novel. Um, for the first time ever, Huxley writes positively about sex. So in his work hitherto, sex had either been viewed as a sort of obstacle to spiritual experience, or it had just been the cause of horrible jealousy and paranoia and misery. Um, whereas in Ireland, they practice Methuna. This is the yoga of love, which is all about affirming the divinity of one's body during sexual intercourse. Mm. Um, and then the inhabitants of Parla Huxley's island, uh, they take the moksha medicine, which is basically magic or psilocybin mushrooms. Um, and they, uh, as a result of this, they sort of choose their own spiritual path and they come to see nature as divine and themselves as divine. And, and, and consequently, they have this very sort of green, ecologically minded attitude mm -hmm. to nature. Mm -hmm. So just, taking from it what they need rather than the sort of instrumental exploitation uh, we associate with western capitalism and making lots of money out of nature part of nature as opposed to just harvesting and taking from nature yeah let's talk about island a little bit as um i think it was his uh was laura his second wife yeah yeah, yeah she i mean she described it at one point in the book as his um his ultimate legacy and I thought that was interesting. And that's what's so really, really interesting about your book, too, because, I mean, obviously so many people, when they think of uh, think of them, they think of Brave New World right away. But uh, you kind of point to the fact that, you know, he needs to be celebrated for his other works as well. And some of those other works are, are could be looked at as even more important. But Island stands out in a major way. Um, 
I was wondering if you agree with that idea of this being one of his biggest pieces of his legacy, as Laura was saying. Yes, absolutely. Um, So towards the end of his life, Huxley gave several lectures in American universities on what he called human potentialities. Mm. And so uh, the idea was uh, to sort of help individuals achieve their full human potential. And he said, you know, we're not using or we're only using a tiny fraction of our brain. So he came up with sort of proposals for how we might better exploit our human potential. And then this was taken up by people like Abraham Maslow, the psychologist. And it has much in common with his idea of self-actualization. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maslow was uh, associated with the Esalen Institute for Alternative Spirituality. And Mike Murphy, one of the co-founders there, he and uh, George Leonard founded the Human Potential Movement, and that was totally uh, based on Huxley's earlier work, inspired by Huxley. Um, so Huxley's second wife, Laura, uh, she said that you know Huxley regarded Ireland as his ultimate legacy, um, and that he was bitterly disappointed that uh, many critics derided the novel, regarding it as a work of science fiction, um, and I think part of the problem, I mean, you know, I agree that it is one of his most important works, but yes, part of the problem for the literary critics was its sort of stylistic infelicities. There's a lot of really clunky exposition in the novel. So, and this was something Huxley was aware of when he was writing the book. Um, he was lamenting in letters all the time that you know, if only he was a born novelist, uh, mm. he'd be able to poeticize uh, all this exposition, whereas the only sort of thing he could think of in order to sort of include the, the infrastructure of parlor and the spiritual beliefs and the education is to have the characters sort of discourse on these to kind of, you know, give little lectures on the you know, crop rotation in parlor, which doesn't seem terribly sexy on the page sometimes. Um, so, you know, I think Alan Watts afterwards, after Huxley died said that, you know, it's a real shame that, that the island wasn't uh, celebrated more because the ideas were excellent, but the execution was, uh, was wanting. And that if he'd sort of done the book as a collection of essays, it would have been a, a much more cogent. Um, but, you know, I mean, as I say, I, I still think it has a, a broad appeal to, to readers today, but I don't think it's his finest novel in terms of literature. Uh, you know, I would say Idis in Gaza is far superior in so far as he strikes a much better balance between uh, ideas and structure and, and plot and character. Yeah. Island was, um, it was almost lost, right? Didn't he save it from a fire in his house? Yes. I mean, they- yeah, but that's that's I was thinking about that because obviously a lot of other stuff was lost, had to be lost in that fire, which is really kind of devastating to think about. It also speaks to how deeply prolific he was. And that's what mm-hmm. I want to ask you, too, because um, at one point you talk about how his essays, and I agree with this completely, deserve a much wider readership. And I was wondering if you could point our listeners here to uh, to, well, maybe what. What makes his essay so special would be the first part of this question. And then if there was a couple uh, couple you could suggest that we read, I, I would love to hear that. Sure, yeah. Um, so I think I said earlier that, you know, Huxley always lamented he wasn't a born novelist, yeah. that it didn't really come naturally. And so he had to write these novels of ideas. 
uh, in which his characters talk about his latest theories and ideas. Um, whereas the essay was the perfect form for him. Uh, he was incredibly good at expounding theories, ideas. Um, and uh, I would, yes, recommend, I mean, the first place for your listeners would probably be The Doors of Perception. Yeah, uh, yeah, most famous essay. It's a real model of concision and clarity, erudition. Um, you know, 70 pages. So if your listeners maybe want something slightly shorter, uh, there's an essay called Culture and the Individual. It's one of the last essays Huxley wrote before his death, uh, which covers much of the same ground as, as the doors of perception and is a, again about psychoactive substances and the spiritual benefits of, of mescaline and LSD. Um, also, there's a collection called The Human Situation, which is a posthumous collection. These were lectures Huxley gave. Uh, in Barbara, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, those are the, I haven't read those, but there's the title and the topics of everything he was mm. discussing is so pertinent to things today as well. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very prescient about yeah. ecology. Yep. Um, and there's a, an essay in that collection called Latent Human Potentialities, mm. which is yeah all about human potential and what we were discussing in, in relation to Ireland. Yeah. Um, so his, uh, he was, his, we're getting to time and time again, we're touching on, he was well ahead of his time. And that definitely comes to psychedelic research. Um, you know, he was pushing way back in the day and even against, you know, those like Timothy Leary to convince influential psychiatrists, scientists, intellectuals, and, you know, um, well-connected businessmen about the responsible guided use of psychedelics, which I think has led to some, you know, uh, the movement of the needle towards psychedelic research these days. And, you know, he championed ideas of integration and, and just things that, that are so pivotal, if you ask me, to the movement. Uh, can I ask you, what, um, what, is, what, what does his work mean to the psychedelic uh, medical uh, movement today? Mm. Yes, it's a great question. Um... I think I mentioned earlier about Osmond and, and uh, who was this British psychiatrist and his attitude was that they were these psychotomimetics, mimickers of psychosis. Um, but then uh, Huxley, as I said, saw it as a sort of gateway to spiritual experience. Uh, and, and it led to a sea change for Osmond. He totally sort of reversed his thinking on the subject. So, uh, you know, and, and also reading the doors of perception was uh, eye-opening for him. So he then, in subsequent mescaline experiences, this is Osmond himself, had, uh, you know, rich affirmative spiritual experiences. And this led him um, three years later on to coin the word psychedelic. So mm. lots of people think it was Huxley who coined it, but it was Osmond. And uh, so psychedelic means mind manifesting, and he proposed to the psychiatric community that it replace psychotomimetic, which is incredibly ugly and hard to pronounce. Um, but he said that psychedelic had this, uh, it connoted the spiritual benefits, the positive virtues of it uh, a lot better. And so on the back of that, Osman pioneered uh, this psychedelic therapy with a colleague of his called Abram Hoffer, uh, so for treating alcoholics, which was uh, very successful. Mm. And also at this time in the 50s and 60s, there were other people offering uh, psychedelic 
treatment. But um, this all sort of came to an end in 1970 with the Federal Controlled Substances Act, which banned medical research on psychoactive substances. And this was partly because of the backlash or the moral panic around LSD um, uh, and psilocybin, um, mushrooms and other psychoactive substances created by people like Timothy Leary and Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. Uh, and Huxley was all the time, you know, he, he knew uh, Leary and um, took psilocybin mushrooms with him and, or maybe it was just psilocybin, uh, but anyway, yes, he, he was uh, aware of, of Leary and uh, but was aware that what Leary was doing would kind of ultimately lead to these substances being banned. Um, yeah, that was the path to prohibition. He wasn't wrong there. No, he, he yeah. wasn't. He was, um, he was definitely uh, justified in, in his approach, which is a little bit more cautious. Um, yeah. But uh, so there was this 20 year moratorium uh, on psychedelic research. Then in the 90s, it gets going again, it becomes legal in certain countries. And then further down the line, we start to see, yes, psychedelic treatments for depression and PTSD. Uh, so you know, this, I would say, you know, goes back in large part to someone like Huxley, but also, you know, Albert Hoffman was also promoting the kind of yeah. spiritual benefits of, of LSD. Yeah, we both have them to thank for so much that's that that are being looked at and and I believe too are are these tools to help some people who really really can use use some help. Um touched on it a little bit, but I kind of want to drive it home because I think it's so amazing. You know, not only does he have such an influence on the psychedelic research going on, but just so much in the new age move and um and it's way beyond yoga. And we we when I say we touched on it, we talked about kind of his connection to um, the spiritual approach to eco, um, ecology. Um, and also the idea of being spiritual, but not religious. I mean, people mm. say that all the time. I find myself saying that sometimes, but it's really, you know, these are, these are ideas that can be traced right back to him. So let's uh, give him a little bit more, uh, you know, discuss a little bit more about what he's meant to a lot of these new age ideas. Yes. So, I mean, it may seem curious to some people who've only read you know, Brave New World that Huxley yeah. is regarded as this sort of you know, influential figure in the New Age, but uh, in his personal life and in his work, he promoted uh, alternative therapies such as hypnotism, acupuncture, the Bates method, the Alexander technique. Um, you know, in the mid-30s, as I said, he was practicing meditation, yoga, pranayama um and so you know nowadays we can just go to the high street and there's a yoga center and take a vinyasa flow class mm -hmm. um and, and do some meditation after the class with the teacher but you know in the 1930s you know no one really knew what yoga was no one was reading the yoga sutras of patanjali apart from sort of eccentric intellectuals like huxley and a few scholars of uh you know religious studies so he was, yeah, very much a, a forerunner. Um, also, yes, his final novel, Island, was very influential in the New Age um, because, you know, the Palinese, they reject institutional religion and they, they take the moksha medicine uh, and choose their own spiritual path. Um, and this is something we associate with, with the New Age, with sort of shopping at the spiritual supermarket, with sort of adopting things like... Uh, 
karma and belief in reincarnation, but sort of without having to subscribe to uh, Buddhism in toto or Hinduism. Uh, so so that, that's kind of one, one element of it. Uh, the other uh, is, yes, in Ireland, Huxley, and, and throughout his work, Huxley tries to reconcile science and spirituality. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Pallies embrace both in their pursuit of a good life um, and then, you know, we can see, you know, later New Age authors um, trying to do this in, in the, the Tao of physics, the dancing wooly masters. Um, and then I guess, yes, there's sort of the, uh, the prescience with regard to ecology. Uh, so the Palinese, uh by taking the moksha medicine, the psilocybin mushrooms, they uh, kind of experience nature as divine and themselves as divine and have this very sort of um, green attitude to the environment. Yeah, it's incredible. It's just really incredible when you look back and just it's just everything he was discussing and what a lot of us believe today. Um, do you feel, to kind of close this down here, do you feel he would be thrilled that these ideas were uh, being championed and, and celebrated these days? I mean, how, how do you believe he would want to be remembered? So yes, I think you're right, uh, Huxley would be thrilled uh, and, and surprised that uh, so many of the, the um, practices and um, ideas that he promoted in his work were taken up by uh, the New Age movement. Uh, and then later on in the 1990s, a spiritual but not religious demographic. Uh, and even in the 20th century, we can, or 21st century, I should say, uh, we can see this sort of a real appetite for spiritual experience uh, in the welter of, you know, ayahuasca retreats, meditation apps, mm. uh, you know, the, the popularity of yoga and tai chi and mind-body uh, practices, also the spiritual communities like Esalen in America, Fintorn in the UK, uh, I really think that now more than ever, Huxley's work leads the way. I could not agree more. Jake, I really, uh, I love the book. I, I recommend it highly to people. It really, it takes you uh, beyond A Brave New World, which is important. It's he's mm. so much more and mm. it really does show that his influence is just getting greater and greater in all the time. So uh, thank you for taking the time to talk about it here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the interview. My pleasure.
Osiris. This podcast is in the loop. The Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.